Well, good morning. My name is Gary Miles. Um, and if you're a visitor here today, please know that I'm filling in for Pastor Eric, who, with his family's uh, enjoying a well-deserved vacation. Um, so I hope you'll come back and hear him preach, and next week we'll continue our regularly scheduled programming <laughs> where he's doing a sermon series on Exodus. Our text this morning is taken from John's first letter, chapter 2, it's just three verses, verses 15 through 17. I'll give you a moment to get there. John says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. For anyone who loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. This is the word of the Lord. So if you've been in our adult uh, discipleship class when I've been leading it, um, you know two things about me. Number one, I can't do anything without a whiteboard behind me. So if uh, you catch me doing this, it's a momentary lapse on my part. And the second thing is, I try to keep track of my time. I don't wear a watch, so I use the phone. And I promise I will try to keep track of time this time as well. Um, Reminds me of a story of... uh, two young boys that were friends, and they, the one friend visited the church of the other, and um, so the service was going on, and he was asking what all this stuff was, you know, what, what's a lectern, what's the communion table, what are the candles for, and the boy tried to explain all that stuff, and then the preacher gets up, and he walks up, and he opens up his Bible, and then he very carefully takes off his watch and sets it in front of him, and the little boy says, what does that mean? The other boy says, well, that don't mean a thing. So (laughs) I will keep an eye on it. When Eric asked if I would consider preaching this Sunday, I wanted to spend some time praying about it because I didn't, uh, it's been several years before since I've done this. And I want to make sure it was something God wanted and not me, of course. And I'll tell you, the answer did come pretty quickly. Um, You see, our small group has been studying the book uh, by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. If you're not familiar with that, just a little sidebar. It's a a fanciful look at temptation and sin, and it's written as a series of letters from a senior tempter or devil to a junior tempter who's trying to corrupt the faith of of a new Christian. Um, And in that, it explores a lot of these topics, of course. Anyway, the chapters we were working on Uh, at the time, these verses just kept coming up again and again for me. Um, And then that weekend, our men's study um, happened to be looking at the three temptations of Jesus. And again, we ended up focusing on these verses. And then, I I happened to be listening to a podcast on the way to work that Monday. And yes, you guessed it, it was the text of this lesson. So, okay, message received, I think I'm supposed to speak on this. Um, And I I have to say I'm grateful to all those resources. They formed much of this message. And I am especially grateful to our small group. um, It was a very uh, open and safe environment to explore a lot of these subjects, which are not easy. And and they are all swirling around this topic. And so I am grateful to them. Uh, Besides all that, our daughter, who's here today with her fiancé, is getting married this weekend. So you might say love is in the air around our house. 
So what does love have to do with the screw tape letters and temptation in the world? Well, before we dig into that text and try to answer that question, let's pray. Uh, Lord, as we approach your word, um, I ask that you open our hearts and our minds. And let this not just be a message for the moment, but uh, be a truth that, uh, by which we live um, and that we are changed and we are transformed more in the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I learned a new acronym a few weeks ago at work. Uh, some of you know I'm an engineer and my world's awash with acronyms. Uh, but this was a new one for me. Uh, I was on a web conference preparing a presentation, and someone asked if we should include a bluff. Now, I don't know about you, but putting a bluff as part of a presentation, especially to management, didn't sound like a reasonable thing to do to me. So I'm, I'm glad this was a web conference so that people couldn't see the dumbfounded look on my face. So I did what all good engineers do when you don't know what's going on. You stay silent. And judging by the silence of everybody else on the phone, I wasn't alone. Well, eventually that person explained what a bluff was. Bluff means bottom line up front. Okay. Well, I decided I would try using the bluff principle today. You see, the bottom line of these verses, these scripture verses, can be summed up in this quote from St. Augustine. Love God and do what you will. Love God and do what you will. We will get back to this at the end, but let me fill in the gaps a little bit more. Now, I know this text may seem straightforward, but I, I titled it the message Misdirected Love in part because I'm not so sure the bottom line is as obvious as one might think. So let's dig into that. First, um, we need to be careful when studying Scripture and pulling little snippets of verses out to make a point. As there, these are just a few short verses taken from the middle of John's letter, I thought it was important to give a little bit of context before we go too far. So this letter was written in particular to address one of the growing heresies at the time called Gnosticism. The quick summary, the Reader's Digest version of Gnosticism, it's taken from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. It's based on a belief that the spirit was pure and the material world corrupt. Since the material world was corrupt... Okay, that being us and everything around us, it could not be a factor in our salvation. And here's the key for our context. That conclusion led to belief that since the material world didn't matter for salvation, well then, psh, anything goes. It was just a backdoor rationale, you see, to justify all manner of immoral and unethical behavior. So in this letter, John is laying out the truth of the gospel and the implications of what that should mean as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. And specifically, that how, as believers, we ought to live our lives. In short, how we live does matter. So it's against this backdrop that John spends a great deal of this letter exposing those wrong beliefs about what it means for believers living in the world. Okay, with that understanding... Notice that the text begins with a command. It's the only command in the text and therefore pretty much captures the main point. Verse 15 begins, Do not love the world or anything in the world. Everything else in the text is an argument, or you might say an incentive, for why we should not love the world. There are three, so let's look at each one first, and then I want to look at how they relate to each other, and finally we're going to explore this idea of love a little bit. So the first incentive John gives is that if anyone loves the world, Love for the Father is not in him. In other words, the reason you shouldn't love the world is that you can't love the world and God at the same time. You see, love for the world pushes out love for God. 
love for the world, pushes out love for God. But notice we can also flip that around. Love for God pushes out love for the world. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and, in this case, money. In the end, we will follow the one we love and push out the other. But wait a minute, you object. Can't I love the world and love God? Well, let me try to answer that. No, you can't. John makes this argument this way. Look again at the second part of verse 15. John says, If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. Then in verse 16 comes the support for that argument. John says, The reason love for the world pushes out love for God is that for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. So leave out those three three phrases in the middle of verse 16, and it would read like this. The reason love for the world excludes love for God is that all that is from the world is not of God. In other words, loving worldly things is not compatible with loving God. So let me try to explain it this way. I'm a parent of three kids, and I know well the fact that when you have your first child, you love them dearly, right? But then the second child comes along, and amazingly, you have this capability or capacity to love them equally as much. And then you discover with each child, your capacity to increase your love just continues to grow. So you might say, well, doesn't it work that way for our love for God? Can't we grow our love for God and the world? Well, let me try to answer it this way. Suppose I had 20 kids, or 50 kids, or 200 kids. I I would love them, to be sure, right? I would love them. But not fully, right? Not completely. I can't. I'm a finite, sinful being. I, I couldn't do it. So the question I would ask is this. Do you have the ability to fully love an infinite loving God and all that other stuff that's not of God? Where exactly does that line exist that we can limit our love for God in favor of the love for the world? Okay, John could have rested his case at the end of verse 16. Don't love the world because love for the world can't coexist with love for God. But he doesn't. He adds two more arguments or incentives again to, the, to uh, not love the world. First, in verse 17, he says, the world and its desires pass away. Okay, that's pretty straightforward, right? The world and its desires will pass away. Let me illustrate this this way. I, I generally, not generally, I do not dabble in the stock market. I just don't have the temperament for it. But a number of years ago, I did try doing this. And I put some different investments in some different things, thinking I'd take a chance on these and maybe, you know, pull some big returns, right? I lost it all. Every one was a loser. Um, and I learned, so I learned some lessons, one being let my son handle my investment. The, <laughs> but I also learned why those stocks were so cheap, you know? The, the, the point is this. Nobody buys stock in a company that is sure to go bankrupt. Nobody sets sail on a ship that's sinking, and no reasonable person is going to lay up treasure where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, would they? This world, as we experience it, is passing away. To set your heart on it is, as they say, a fool's errand, and it'll only lead to heartache and misery in the end. Okay, but notice that's not all. Look at verse 17 again. Not only is the world passing away, but also the desires of it. 
So if you share the desires of the world, you will pass away. You will not only lose your treasure, you will lose your life. If you love the world, it will pass away and take your desires right with it. Okay, so the world and its desires will pass away. Second, in verse 17, John continues and says this, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So the opposite of loving the world is not, being, is not only loving the Father, but also doing the will of the Father. So that connection's not really hard to understand. Uh, if we go to John's Gospel in chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said this, If you love me, you will obey what I command. But then notice just one chapter later, he says this, If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Also later in this letter, John says a similar thing. He says this, is love for God, to obey his commands. So, loving the Father in verse 15, doing the will of God in verse 17 are not separate things. They are inextricably linked and, in fact, leading each other. So, I'm going to try to illustrate this. A simple diagram of it might look like this. At first, you love God, and that leads, right, to some level of obedience, which then leads to some more love, which leads to more obedience, and so on such that both love and obedience keeps growing in us as we continue to love and obey and be filled with the love of God. So now I ask you, with an infinite loving God, ultimately where does that leave room for love of the world? Okay, if I can paraphrase what John is arguing, it would go something like this. If you love the world, you will perish with the world, but if you love God, you will do his will and live with him forever. Okay, let me summarize this all. The text contains one command and three arguments. The command is, don't love the world or the things in the world. The first argument is that if you love the world, you push out the love for God. The second argument is that if you love the world, you will perish with the world. And the third argument is that if you love God instead of the world, you will live with God forever. But now, what is this world that we are not to love? So verse 16 says that it's characterized by three things. I know we're working with threes. Clearly, John was in training to be a Presbyterian preacher. (laughs) It's amazing. Okay, the three are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So some versions, it reads like this. The cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. So commentators have long identified these three temptations that we're discussing with the temptations of Adam and Eve and with the three temptations of Jesus in the desert. So, for extra credit homework this week, go look up those stories and see if you can make the connection to these. So again, they are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Let me start with the last item, pride of life. That word for life does not refer to the state of being alive but rather to the things in the world that make life possible. So, for example, in chapter 3, verse 17, that same word is translated material possessions. John says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Jesus uses the same word in Mark 12, 44, when he speaks of the poor widow in the temple. There, it's translated this way. She, poor widow, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So that phrase pride of life means pride in what you possess, all that you have, everything. 
So now we can see how the three descriptions of the world relate to each other. The first two, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, refers to desires for what we don't have. The third, the pride of life, refers to the pride in what we do have. The world is driven in large measure by these two things, passion for pleasure and pride in our possessions or status. And the passion for pleasure, you notice, is described in two ways because there are two large classes of pleasure. There's physical and there's aesthetic. There is this lust of the flesh, right, or bodily pleasures, and then the lust of the eyes or aesthetic. And I would include intellectual pleasures along with that. So if we, um, if we are honest, right, we are all driven by desires, lusts, and it crosses the spectrum of life, right? Am I not right there? And it, it can be too easy to compartmentalize our desires, right? Put them in a little box. And from there, it's just a small step to rationalizing them as somehow okay. In other words, we tend to think desires for nice, respectable things are not bad, nor are desires for things that are good, right? Like family, friends, education, leisure, whatever it is. But you see the point, they are all desires of the heart. In the end, relative to an infinite God, there's really very little difference between the lust of the gutter and the lust of gourmet, or the lust for crack and the lust for Cabernet, or craft beer, or coffee for that matter. Here's the high calling John is commanding us to. Anything in the world that is not God can rob your heart of the love for God. Anything that is not God can draw your heart away from God. If you don't have it, you can, it can fill you with passion to get it. If you get it, it can fill you with pride that you've got it. So now let's take a look how Jesus describes this in Matthew 6. I briefly mentioned it earlier. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And here's the key. For wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For many years, I, I struggled with this verse. And it's not because I didn't believe what it's telling me. I, I do. But I was always curious, why was it worded this way? You know, it seems backwards to me. Now, maybe I'm the only one that didn't get this. I don't know. But I would describe desire as where my heart is, there you will find my treasure. It seemed to me my heart is what directs this. And that's what we've been discussing. And of course it does. But in studying for this message it became clear what Jesus was telling us, telling me. Actually, this is true, one night driving home as I was working on this message, kind of in my head, you know, I was thinking about this verse, and God just kind of suddenly made the light go on for me. <clears throat> Excuse me. You see, those treasures, those desires, ultimately end up dragging your heart along with them and away from the only one who you can truly satisfy us. That's why it's worded that way. Where your treasure is, your heart will be drugged to it. Okay, one last reference on this topic. Against the lust of the flesh <clears throat> and the, the lust of the eyes. The psalmist says in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. <clears throat> 
Therefore, let us desire nothing but God, possess nothing but God, and pursue nothing but God. Okay, that's a high bar, isn't it? Actually, that's probably an impossible bar. And you may object, should I not desire nourishment? Should I not desire a job? Should I not desire my spouse? Should I not desire the child in my womb? Should I not desire a healthy body or a good night's rest or a place to live or the morning sun or a great book or an evening with friends? Well, let me try to answer that. No and yes. No, you shouldn't unless, and here's the yes part, unless inherent in it is a desire for God. Unless inherent in it is a desire for God. What do I mean by that? Well, again, I'm going to point to St. Augustine. He captured the heart of this text beautifully in this statement. He said, He loves thee, God, too little who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. Let me say that again. He loves thee too little who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. Let me try to translate that. We do not yet fully love God if there is anything we love that is not loved as from God and for the sake of God. So, what does the command, do not love the world or anything in the world, then look like? Do you desire dinner because you desire God and see his provision in it? Do you want a job because in it you will discover God and use your God-given gifts? Do you long for a spouse because you want to seek God together and love God with your spouse? Do you desire the child and the healthy body and the good night's rest and the place to live and the morning sun and the great book and the evening with friends for God's sake? Do you have an eye for God in everything you desire? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. But if the love of the Father is in you, if you love God with all your heart, then every room you enter will be a temple of love to God. All your work will be a sacrifice of love to God. Every meal will be a banquet of love with God. And every song will be an overture of love to God. Then we too can say with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven and on earth has nothing I desire besides you. So let me say it more plainly. God does not want your things. He wants your heart. God does not want your things. He wants your heart. And that brings me back to the bluff. St. Augustine, again, summed it up perfectly. Love God and do what you will. Of course, understanding that that love will direct your will. Okay. That would be a good place to stop, but... (laughs) I can't quite leave it there. See, I titled this message Misdirected Love, and it's easy to see how our desires, our love, can be directed at the world and the things of this world, right? But I have one more challenge for you, for me, before I close. Because in reality, it is all too easy to associate our heart's desires with our love toward other things, right? Things are not personal. They are detached. They're separate from us. The real point, we need to understand that it is not our love directed at the world that is the ultimate issue here. You see, it is, in the end, the love of self. 
It is a love misdirected toward ourselves. Love misdirected toward self. In the end, it's the love of self that we are really trying to satisfy. And that's perhaps a harder message to receive. Okay, so perhaps some of you are saying, do I really have that kind of love for God? This message can be a heavy reality check on who we are. And perhaps some are saying, how do I possibly, this side of heaven, move my heart to that level of love for God? Well, what I can say to that is that this is the state we are all in, every last one of us. But the good news is we have a gracious and loving Father who desires us infinitely more than we could possibly desire anything else. Okay, we've talked about what we aren't supposed to do and what we are supposed to do, but I didn't really give you much in the way of nuts and bolts help to get there. And you're right, I didn't. Mainly because God, as with most matters of the heart, cannot be reduced to a formula. But also because that would fill a subject of several sermons and I'm watching the time. So how do we exactly change our heart's desires? So let me close with this few thoughts. Okay, hopefully this will help in this area. But please understand, please understand this very important point. Ultimately, it is Christ who changes our hearts. With our cooperation, to be sure, but it is ultimately Christ. What I'm suggesting is just how to open yourself up to that more. So first, as Timothy Keller often says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Accept the fact that we fail. Ask for forgiveness. Then lean into that love and that grace and let it strengthen your faith at every challenge, at every turn, at every moment in your life. Second, and this could be a sermon all in itself, let yourself be vulnerable to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, I use that word on purpose, being vulnerable, being open. Pray that his spirit will shape your heart to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Now, I know prayer is hard. It is. Why do you think the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray? Here's my simple suggestion if you're struggling in this area. When you wake up in the morning, simply thank the Lord for the new day and ask Jesus to open your heart and mind to his leading. In other words, have a heart of gratitude to Christ and a heart that is constantly seeking Christ. Okay, third, if you're not involved with Christian community, I encourage you, please get involved. Join a small group, attend a discipleship class, a Bible study, meet one-on-one with a close friend, something where you can open up your heart and strengthen your faith. Whatever it is does not matter. Engage with a community of believers. You will experience You will experience God at work, as I have with our small group. Okay, finally, let me close with this one quick story. Our small group met, um, we had a fun outing. We went to the observatory in Byron. I loved it. I I mean, I love to study the skies. I love to study the heavens. It just, it's, there's so much beauty, and it just, as the psalmist says, it shows forth God's glory. But you know, when you look through the telescope, all that external stuff, even the beauty is all shut out, and you can clearly focus on one star, one sun. And yes, the play on, word is, on the word is, is intentional. My point is this. Let your focus, let your aim in life be about one thing, loving Jesus Christ. 
The author of Hebrews puts it this way, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joys be set before him endured the cross. And then, open up your heart to an infinite God who will fill it to overflowing. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we are surrounded by a beautiful creation of yours. There's so much here, and what you, yet we know it's temporary. Uh, I ask your help through your spirit that you will change our hearts, mold our hearts. Let us see that all of that is from you and for you, and let us live out our daily lives in love to you, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.